welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I am SI.com soccer editor Avi Creditor, joined today by SI senior writer Grant Wall, SI.com's Brian Strauss, and SI.com's Ben Littleton. And guys, uh, we talk about the week of, of soccer every week, and, and this has been one of the more momentous weeks uh, I think we could possibly have imagined uh, the week. It's big news, Sepp Blatter uh, resigning from FIFA four days after his his re-election. We sat here last week wondering, uh, you know, what was on the table in terms of this massive FBI investigation, and lo and behold, really everything is because unfathomably Sepp Blatter, uh, whenever the new election is held, is gone. Uh, I want to welcome in Grant first. Uh, Grant, you're in Vancouver, I believe, the Women's World Los Cup. Los Angeles so was this morning, Vancouver later today. I, I can't even keep track. we got to do a little Matt Lauer thing. Where where in the world are you? Uh, so, Grant, your what was your initial thought? I mean, Bladder's press conference, that's, that's a landmark moment. Everyone loves to say, oh, I saw this coming. Nobody saw that announcement coming. Uh, you know, the most likely scenario was, was that Jerome Valk was going to uh, face... Uh, some severe issues after the revelation in the New York Times, um, you know, reporting that investigators were telling them that Valk had authorized this bribe um, as a go-between between the South Africans and the dirty CONCACAF guys where FIFA money was actually sent to Jack Warner and Chuck Blazer for their votes for uh, the 2010 World Cup. Um, you know, I we don't know exactly what happened behind the scenes that caused Seth Blatter to do such an about face from Friday where he was just basically taunting uh, the U.S. investigation, uh, totally defiant to Tuesday when he's resigning and talking about all these changes and reforms that need to take place at FIFA, uh, including term limits, which I find hilarious since he's been in charge since 1998. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, this was a, a huge moment uh, in and of itself, full stop. Uh, the most powerful man in sports was announcing that he would be resigning, uh, but also kind of wanting to do it on his own terms. He's you know, not wanting to leave immediately. He's wanting to force these reforms in. He's wanting to remain president until this special election in December. And it was a reminder also that this is an institution that is rotten. Uh, FIFA and the confederations and the entire governance structure needs an overhaul and that just because Sepp Blatter is leaving FIFA doesn't mean that everything is fixed and there's so much hard, hard work that needs to be done from a governance perspective uh, to get this place going in the right direction that uh, this still seems like a start, but it's a, it's still a big moment. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, Brian, you know, Friday, Sepp Blatter is on a stage in Zurich saying he's the president of everybody, uh, in, in addition to a number of other choice quotes, most of which you can find on Planet Football. Uh, and now he's the president of nobody. Was this, in your estimation, a product of sponsor pressure? Is this the FBI is getting closer and closer? Is this a combination of the two? Or did did suddenly this this defiant man have a, a pang of conscience and... and feel like he needed to do the right thing where where do you kind of come out on this i'm gonna guess it's not the last one <laughs> um i don't think anyone on the planet has ever liked anything as much as set bladder liked being fifa president um you know and and i don't know that he i mean i'm sure he made a pretty penny off of it but it was it was the adulation it was the 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 lunches with 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 uh, world leaders and dictators, and it was the private jets, and it was 
you know, it was the hope that there'd be statues built of him around the world because he, you know, uh, let a bit, let a little bit of soccer's largesse kind of tinkle down to the unwashed. So, um, you know, it, it certainly had to be something significant. I just thought the image of him resigning in front of an empty room was really amazing. I mean, there was what, like five guys there, you know, who, who you know, may, maybe just the reporters who happened to live within walking distance of, of FIFA's headquarters. Um, you know, for him to sort of go out like that uh, was really kind of a stunning image. Um, and I'll also say this, and Grant touched on this a little bit, he's not gone yet. He, he is still the president. And he could wreak a lot of havoc over the next whatever it is, six to eight months before they manage to call this special election that he will have a say about how it's run. He may have a say about who runs. Uh, you know, he still has an opportunity uh, to leave his greasy fingerprints all over this thing. So while it's nice that this has happened and the other day was really satisfying, this thing is far from cleaned up. It's far from over. There's still a lot of, uh, you know, scoundrels in the mix here and a lot of malfeasance that could go on as long as Sepp is at the helm. And that's a really good point. The reality of the situation really is is that change is coming but hasn't happened immediately. I think a lot of people watching that press conference got caught up in, in, in just the, the shock value of it and, and thought, wow, he's done, he's done, he's done. But there's, you know, he could still be in power until December, until – 2016. Um, so and he could still manipulate. He could still manipulate his voting blocks to support certain people, right? I, I mean, we, we we don't know how this is going to shake out, and we don't know who's going to be anointed. I mean, he was still elected. He still he still has the support of a significant majority of FIFA's membership. So there's a lot he could do with that support. Uh, you know, he said he was laying down his mandate. He still has a mandate from a lot of people, and we're going to see that brought to bear over the next few months. I yeah. love the term laying down his mandate, by the way, not resigning. I, That's I, I said it. In an everyday conversation, like once this podcast is done, I will lay down my mandate for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know what? I, I might start using that term uh, as well. Ben, uh, you look at some of the people who have been touted as as the, the odds maker's favorites to take over, and it's not like these are, are – wholesale changes. I mean, Michel Platini, he, he doesn't agree with Sepp Blatter. He wants him to, to leave, but he's also a massive supporter of Qatar. And, and that is obviously one of the, the central issues in, in this investigation that's uh, still developing. And, and heck, it could change by the time this podcast is done. Uh, just what, what do you make of, of kind of the names being thrown around as, as his potential successor? And what do you think ultimately should happen? I don't think many people have compared uh, FIFA to Manchester United or Blatter to Ferguson. But you don't really want to be the guy who replaces the guy. You want to be the guy that replaces the guy who replaces the guy. <laughs> so I think that the, the next guy in charge is going to have a nightmare, but the one after him is going to be okay, which is what we've seen really at, at Manchester United. And Grant and Brian are both right in, in making the point that A, Blatter never used the word resign, but also I don't think this was a knee-jerk reaction at all. He he ran for president. He won the election, winning two-thirds of, of the majority vote. And then three days later, he decided to lay down the mandate, which basically means I'm going to give myself another year to, to make reforms, but I'm still in charge. Now, if he felt the net was closing in so much uh, in the last three days, but not last week, what, you know, what has changed in those last three days? A letter that 
that has Valka's name on it that not necessarily Valka has signed off on or anything. And in the past, we've seen FIFA ride out storms by just stonewalling, stonewalling things. And that, that didn't happen this time. I think that, that this decision from Blatter has been a long time coming. I don't think Blatter or FIFA do, do things in a knee-jerk way. And I think even before the election took place, this was part of Blatter's long-term plan. And it is to keep control of the future of FIFA. What Blatter wants to do is make the executive committee smaller and have its members voted through by FIFA and not the confederations because the one area that Blatter doesn't have control over is the confederations. And so if he wants his own men in charge, he can vote them through onto the Exco. And that is what is going to be um, the future reform, really, for, for Blatter. And in terms of the names that have been put forward, Platini is a difficult one because he is UEFA. He's affiliated to, to UEFA. I wrote about this on SI.com at the end of last year. But UEFA at the moment are the guys that are, are causing the most problems for FIFA. And so if FIFA wants to elect someone who is going to push through reform and help the global game, it wouldn't be someone from necessarily the richest collection of countries uh, that, that aren't looking after Africa or Asia. So I'd imagine that FIFA would want to appoint someone from Africa or Asia, although I know Grant likes the idea of appointing someone from outside football. And while that um, is a dream scenario, I can't see that happening either. It's also not possible, according to the current rules of FIFA, that in 2013 they changed it so that to be even eligible to run for FIFA president, you had to have been active in football for at least two of the previous five years. That requirement wasn't there before, and it was done to make it so that you basically had to be an insider or a former player or someone who was not a, a total outsider uh, to to run for president. They made it... That rule, only came in, Grant. that rule only came in after you ran for president four years ago, so you can't attack well, a rule yeah. that you created. Actually, I was looking up, in, in the laws of the game. Up. It's actually called the, the Grant Wall Bylaw, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Grant, I think the, the ultimate trump card here is, is the FBI investigation. I mean, we, we saw Chuck Blazer's testimony um, that implicated the 98 World Cup, which is a completely new revelation. Uh, into all of all of the filth, Jack Warner has has changed his natural disaster. He's now <laughs> he, he's now promising an avalanche uh, to to come against the bladder and and by someone who believes the onion. I don't know how believable he is, but he obviously knows things and and was part of it all. And and you know the FBI has promised more. Isn't that kind of the key now going forward in terms of speeding up the the reform and making sure that bladder doesn't you know, carry on his legacy for whoever takes over? Well, there's two big things happening. There's what's going on inside FIFA and what's going on outside FIFA. And that, that outside FIFA investigation is what is determining the events right now. And so uh, Sepp Blatter may say he wants to control uh, the transition from the inside, but he may be forced from this investigation on the outside to continue altering that. Uh, and maybe out permanently at some point here, especially if more revelations uh, come out. The way I see it, I guess, is the question about FIFA and, you know, governance is not the sexiest topic, but, you know, the ideas of term limits and background checks and making the executive committee smaller and changing the rules so that you can allow true outsiders to run um, like a Kofi Annan, like a Christine Lagarde, 
I would love to see Bill Clinton, and I know Bill's kind of compromised on some things, but I think he would be fun. Um, someone who's a true outsider, I'd like to see that be part of the changes that Blatter tries to steer in. Uh, I don't expect him to do that, um, but if Blatter does retain control and actually have an influence over this special election that could be as early as December, uh, the guy to watch, in my opinion, is Sheikh Ahmed, the new Exco member from Kuwait who has a magnificent Jerry Curl haircut uh, and is tremendously powerful inside the International Olympic Committee. Um, and he's Blatter's guy. And, and if Blatter does actually have an influence in the end, he might be the guy I would pick to most likely replace Blatter. But there's so much coming from the, the U.S. investigation that everything's still on the table and more revelations could come out. And, um, and then Blatter may not have that much control over uh, who succeeds him. A lot of moving parts for sure. Um, ben, i just curious on on what your thoughts. Andrew Jennings, who's been a, a journalist who's been getting a, a ton of, of publicity now because everything that he's been talking about for for years and reporting on is is coming to light. I just, obviously you are over in, in that part of of the world just curious on on your thoughts on what his reporting has has done and and if you were a a believer the whole time that that he was onto something well um was i a believer uh if i was uh i was in the minority because you know five years ago the bbc ran a program where um jennings approached the likes of warner um blaster as well asked them about bribes asked them about dodgy dealings um, and it was a time when we were bidding for England, like the U.S., were bidding to host the World Cup. Uh, for England, it was 2018. And the FA said uh, it was irresponsible um, journalism f- for us to put our bid at risk in this way. Um, and now the FA are the first one saying, well, we knew FIFA were dodgy all along. But the <laughs> FA were the guys who took their team to Trinidad to play a friendly, uh, you know, in Jack Warner's back garden. And so... It's hypocrisy, really, from the English FA, who are doing themselves no favours, and the politicians in this country, where I am in England, who who are using this uh, this moment of upheaval um, to suggest that they host the the 2022 World Cup. Say, well, we can do it. It's fine. You know, this sounds like sour grapes and opportunism from the English side, when in fact, what England and the rest of the world should be wanting is is uh, improvements and, and reform. Um, they're they're trying to uh, you know make make political capital out of it, and it's and it's doing no favors to, to England. Yeah, Brian, uh, go ahead. I, I know you want to chime in yeah, on this. I was just going to say I, I don't know that the perception of of this kind of developing world versus Europe and America uh, necessarily fits the reality. I, I do think that some people are going to see it that way in terms of where they see the power shift in FIFA going. But you know, as Ben said, you know. These countries, the quote-unquote first world countries, have been playing ball with these guys too. I mean, I tweeted out yesterday, MLS gave their highest honor to Chuck Blazer in 2006. I mean, they, they, they must have imagined that this guy with the, you know, flashing his, you know, black American Express card around fancy restaurants and strip clubs and holding up in the Trump Tower was enriching himself on some level. And that doesn't mean MLS is dirty. It doesn't mean U.S. soccer is dirty. But, but the fact that they didn't suspect, the fact that they were, were sort of 
doing business with this guy, the fact that the FA did business with Jack Warner, um, you know, the fact that we've seen this morning Ireland's taking 5 million euros from FIFA uh, to placate them over Thierry Henry's, uh, you know, hand of gall uh, call in, in, in World Cup qualifying. There's a lot of people who are touched by this, who are a little bit sullied by this. And I don't think that there should be the perception that there's a clean part of the world and a dirty part of the world. Yeah, I I would agree with that, and and it's it's pretty clear. We we again we don't even know the the depths that that this all goes to, but uh, it's you just start questioning everything now, um, and I, I think ultimately that's what these last two weeks have been about. Um, but again, Sepp Blatter resigning, just just seeing that image of him on on the stage, and then the the AFP photograph of him walking towards the light as he left the podium. I thought that was just the most striking image uh, of the week. Um, now, one place that Bladder might actually be this summer uh, is the Women's World Cup. Uh, Grant, I know you asked FIFA about this, and, and they said they, I mean, this was, I believe, was it before he resigned or was it was it after that he planned to go? It was before he resigned, uh, and FIFA first said, had this ridiculously officious response of, the travel plans of the FIFA president remain to be determined, uh, <laughs> which I tweeted out. And then people were like laughing at the whole thing. And then I think FIFA realized that that uh, sent an interesting message about that he might be in trouble, which in fact he was, um, and said that he planned on attending the final. Uh, whether he still plans on attending the final is anyone's question. Uh, it's fairly certain that if he does um, – the same thing will happen that happened during the London Olympics where he was booed massively by just about everyone in the stadium uh, when he came out onto the field, which was rather satisfying. Um, <laughs> but we'll have to wait and see if Bladder comes. It's very clear, actually, one of the players uh, around the world who has been most w- willing to take on Bladder publicly is Abby Wambach, uh, who has uh, been, I think, uh, ahead of the curve on that uh, we haven't seen the top male soccer players take on Bladder and FIFA very often. We have uh, we had waited until yesterday to see David Beckham finally start criticizing FIFA after he didn't do so for years and years and years. Uh, so uh, will Bladder come? Who knows? Uh, I kind of hope he stays away. I, I think once this Women's World Cup starts, I, I think uh, it will obviously get a ton of attention. The U.S. games will get a ton of attention uh, we still may get revelations from the FIFA investigation as we go along. Uh, it's just going to be kind of a, a parallel thing. But in general, um, you know, people around the world love the World Cup, whether it's the Men's World Cup or, or especially in certain parts like the U.S., the Women's World Cup. Uh, and in a weird way, that's actually kind of allowed the corruption to continue at FIFA because the money keeps coming in, especially for the men's world cup, $5 billion in, in revenue just for last years. Um, and that's allowed set bladder to stay in power and keep this institutional patronage politics going. And also he's, he's the self-proclaimed godfather of women's soccer. Lest we forget. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Do you think he know who Abby Wambach is now? I think I think he knows who Abby Wambach is. Grant, okay. like you reported, he has no idea who Marta is. Obviously, because no, she's only won the, the Player of the Year yeah. award five times. <laughs> um, but how how funny was it that that his resignation speech came on Abby Wambach's birthday? Uh, <laughs> I thought that was just just the icing 
uh, on the cake. And now, of course, if the U.S. does win this this thing for the first time since 1999, and if Sepp Blatter is there, we get the image that I think could could totally uh, define the the World Cup for better or worse, and that's Sepp Blatter handing a trophy over to Abby Wambach, Christine Rampone, and and the United States. Now. There's a long way to go uh, between now and then. Uh, SI on, on Planet Football, si.com slash soccer. Uh, we've got a ton of great preview content leading up to this Women's World Cup. Um, I'm sure you've seen it by now, but if you haven't, uh, the latest issue of SI Magazine has Abby Wambach, Alex Morgan, Sydney LaRue, and Carly Lloyd. Uh, they each have their own individual covers in addition to a group one. A lot of excitement, a lot of buzz about this tournament. Uh, ultimately, Grant, um, the... The talent pool across the world has has gotten better. The U.S. is in an extremely tough tough group. I know it's assumed that the U.S. is going to make a run to at least the semifinals because that's just what they do, but it's not that easy this time. Well, they're in a very difficult group, the hardest group in the tournament uh, with Australia, Nigeria, and definitely Sweden, a team that has beaten the U.S. four years ago in the group stage and is coached by Pia Sundhaga, who knows how to beat the U.S. Um, so... Uh, you know, it's it's a difficult group, but if the U.S. can win the group, the games actually get easier for a little while. They would be looking at having to face a team like Costa Rica in the round of 16 if they win the group, maybe with the Netherlands or Switzerland after that. So no powerhouses. So it's, there's a real incentive for the U.S. to win the group, not finish second. If you finish second in the group, you're looking at Brazil in the round of 16 and defending champion Japan in the quarterfinals. Uh, which obviously would be a very, very difficult road. So uh, the U.S. really doesn't want to have any slip-ups in this group stage, uh, but I still think it's a good thing to start with difficult games because it will get the U.S. dialed in from the start of the tournament, needing to play good soccer to, to do well. Uh, and I think there will be a real buzz around each one of these U.S. games in a way that there wouldn't be if the U.S. were playing, say, Thailand or Ivory Coast or Cameroon. Yeah, that's that's a fair point for sure. Um, I think it, it helps them that Sweden is not the first game um, because, like you said, Sweden could very easily beat the U.S. Uh, and, and starting with a loss or even a draw, really, in, in this group, uh, it just ratchets up the pressure so much. Um, Brian, I, look, it's been 16 years since since the U.S. has, has won this thing. Uh is is this the year? Is this is this necessary? Is this? I mean, this is validation for for a lot of players who are at the end of their careers. I I think that's a I think that's a statistical fluke. I, I think if you played the, the the past three World Cups again, the U.S. would win two of them. I mean, I think every time this team loses, it's a statistical fluke. Uh, they they have uh, a, a cultural and and development and 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 athletic advantage over so much of the rest of the world uh that's really really tough to keep uh to, to catch up with and and so yes i mean you know people say this is a tough first round group there's literally no chance the u.s doesn't do well in this group uh you know i'd, I'd say 80 percent chance they win the group and 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 they should be in the semifinals they almost have a bye to the semifinals i almost feel like the women's world cup is kind of a wake me in the semifinals uh, kind of situation <laughs> Uh, the U.S. is the U.S. Women's National Team is one of the most dominant teams in all of sports, and they should win every game they play. And the fact that they haven't won any of the past three World Cups, I think, is a is an accident. It's it's flipping a coin three times and having it land on its edge. That's that's a that's a take. That's a take. I think 
Uh, simplifies things a, a little bit. I mean, Japan obviously deserves some credit for for what they were able to do in the final. Of course, that came down to penalties in, in 2011, and the U.S. was just horrific. And, and that the U.S. US also blew two late leads in that game. Yep. Uh, they were minutes away from winning it twice. Um, you know, and, and there were a lot of other factors there. I mean, let, let it, leaving Sawa unmarked on that corner, uh, Sunhaga leaving a sub on the bench, uh, three players missing penalties. I mean, that was just a, sort of an epic kind of collapse. And, 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 you know, like I said, I, I, I think the U.S. having gone as long as it has without winning a, a Women's World Cup is, is a fluke. Uh, Grant, I know, I know you want to chime in on here. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll disagree with my man Strauss. Uh, I think it was just a crazy, baffling situation in 2011 that the U.S. didn't win that World Cup, especially based on what happened in the final. But 03 and 07, the U.S. lost to clearly better teams, in my opinion. When you look at Germany in 03, uh, that was a pretty convincing win. Uh, 3 nothing in the semifinals uh, out in Portland. And and now you look at 07 and losing 4 nothing to Brazil and, and just a rampant Marta in that game. Yes, there were a lot of extenuating circumstances with a red card and, and Greg Ryan making the dumbest decision maybe in the history of uh, U.S. coaching uh, by benching Hope Solo. But uh, I still think the U.S. lost to better teams in 03 and 07. And uh, I don't know if the U.S is the best team in the world right now. I, I think they're very close to it. I think if everyone plays at their best, the U.S. should win this tournament. Uh, but I, I look at Germany and I look at um, Japan. I look at France and how they've emerged in the last five years. And I think Canada's got a shot, an outside shot, uh, as does Brazil. So you're starting to talk about five, five and a half teams maybe that could win this tournament. And, and so I look forward to it being competitive. For what it's worth, in that semifinal in, in 03, I mean, the Germany Germany got two of those three goals in stoppage time. Uh, the U.S. Out, outshot Germany, had twice as many corner kicks. Um, you know, that was, again, that was just one of those games that happens in soccer, and Germany certainly was very good. But I think when you take it in sum, when you take the, the three World Cups, I just think it's, a, it's an accident that the U.S. hasn't won at least one of those. Well, and, and you look at the Olympics, the last... Uh, Good point, yep. You know, it, it's, it's, it's more of a similar tournament to the World Cup than on the men's side. Obviously, you're not always getting... Uh, well, it's an, you know, it's an under-23 tournament with the men, so you're not getting, uh, you know, the best teams of, of you know, the A-listers across the board. And the U.S. Has, has obviously done extremely well in the Olympics and, and in those cases. Um, now, you know, we'll see in, in a few days' time... Uh, if they can best the world again. Um, and it's, look, there's, there's a lot of excitement around the team. I think a lot hinges on, on Alex Morgan's health, which, you know, she didn't play at all in the, in the tune-up games, um, at least not in, in the final ones. She did play uh, against New Zealand and St. Louis. Um, but her, her presence on the field, no matter how deep the U.S. is in the attack, matters. And so, uh, you know, for the U.S.'s sake, you, you would hope that she is fully healthy, but as, as Grant, you've, you've reported, they're not just going to throw her into the fire right away. She's kind of, kind of ease into those full minutes. Um, and you know, we'll see if that happens in game two or, or game three or not even until the knockout stage, but that's a wild card here. Yeah, it is. Jill Ellis saying, uh, the other day in the last send off game that they're going to have to build Morgan's minutes in the early stages of the tournament. So clearly at this point, this knee contusion is going to cost, Alex Morgan some time on the field at the World Cup, and the question is how much. She has been training finally uh, the last couple of days in Canada and Winnipeg. Uh, I think it would be a risk 
to start her in the first game. Uh, and she's definitely not going to play 90 minutes in any of these first games. Uh, this is someone who hasn't played a game, a competitive game at club or national team level in more than 50 days now. So uh, you certainly don't want to bring her back too quickly and you want her to be available for the biggest games that count at the World Cup. I expect we'll see her some in the group stage, but probably less than a lot of people think. And then it's on the U.S. to make it to the knockout stage without her. We we don't anticipate that being an issue, especially with uh, the four best third-place finishers making it through to the knockout round, um, but something to keep an eye on for sure. Uh, Grant, I know we, we've got to bid you farewell as as you go uh, either lay, off to Vancouver. Lay down my mandate, Adi. Lay down the mandate. Lay it down, and uh, and we will catch you next week uh, on this and definitely look for, for more of uh, Grant's reporting from the Women's World Cup. That should certainly be our first podcast T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> The SI Planet Football Podcast. Laying down the mandate. We lay down the mandate. Um, Bye, guys. All right. Take it easy, Grant. Uh, ben, I want, I want to bring you back in here, and I want to turn the page to the Champions League final, which somehow has just become, uh, what, the third story of the week, depending on, on how you prioritize things. Um, Barcelona, Juventus, one of them is winning a treble, which is which is historic in its own right. The fact that it's too... Uh, managers, their first years at the club is another. We will not get Luis Suarez against Giorgio Chiellini. Chiellini has been ruled out with a calf injury. That's okay. There's enough talent on the field and enough storylines in play uh, to whet any soccer fan's appetite. Now that we're a couple of days out, taping this on a Thursday before the Saturday final, Ben, where do you see this final shaping up? Well, the Chiellini uh, dropout will be seen as an advantage to Barcelona, obviously. It means that Juventus can't really play a three at the back, which was an option. They could play 3-5-2. That's something that they did under Antonio Conte all the time. Under Allegri, they've mixed it up and uh, played 4-1-3-2 and sometimes 3-5-2. So now that, that option is, is out of the window. But there is a silver lining because Bonucci and Barzali have really been Juventus' two best defenders this season anyway. Chiellini was the guy who slipped uh, in the uh, round of 16 game against Dortmund to allow Marco Royce to score. He's made a few mistakes this season. Um, and then there is the, the subplot with Suarez, which you know probably won't affect either player or wouldn't have affected either player once you're out on the field. But you know it, it takes up a lot of energy and airtime in the build-up to it. So maybe it's no bad thing that, that Chiellini's not there. And the other, the other couple of storylines that are really interesting for me is Tevez against Messi. I think at the moment Messi is playing the best football of his career. The goal he scored last week against Athletic Bilbao in the Copa del Rey final was one of the, one of the best three I think he scored in his career. And that's saying um, something because he's, he's scored some pretty amazing goals, especially just yeah. Ascatafe. But uh, but yeah, that, that run, just splitting the three defenders, cutting back on the other and then finishing near post was, was amazing. Yeah, and that came a couple of weeks after, you know, destroying Manuel Neuer and, and Bayern Munich, one of the best teams in, in world football as well. So he he really is unstoppable at the moment. And and for Juventus, Tevez is, is in similar form. And th- these are two guys that, you know, have very different um, appreciations in, in Argentina, where Tevez is seen as a man of the people and authentic and a real Argentine. And, and Messi is seen as much smoother, um, because he left 
um, to, to, to move to Barcelona age 13, just seems more European, doesn't say interesting things in his interviews, Tevez wears his heart on his sleeve, wants to return to Boca as soon as he can. Um, it, it's fascinating, really, and they, they might play together in the Copa America, and it, you know, it's been reported that they, they don't get on. Aguero and Messi are, are very close, but, but Tevez is, uh, is not in the gang. And then there's Luis Enrique, the Barcelona coach, who's on the verge of repeating what Pep Guardiola did in his first season, and yet he might leave after the game. He could walk out halfway through his two-year contract because he doesn't feel that he's getting the support uh, from from upstairs that, that he deserves. Um, there was a big clash in January between Luis Enrique and Messi, even though both parties have tried to play it down and even deny it. There was a stage where... Um, the Barcelona president asked Lionel Messi if he wanted Luis Enrique sacked. And Messi said no. But uh, at that moment, when Enrique heard about that, he, he thought about throwing it all in as well and resigning. So there was a, a real moment of, of crisis at the club. And this is in the season where FIFA have banned them from making transfers for the next two windows. Uh, their sporting director has resigned, the assistant Carlos Puel has, has walked out and Bartomeu, the president, has called snap elections for this summer. Um, it's also going to be Xavi's last game for Barcelona. It uh, could well be Pirlo's last game for Juventus. So there's a load going on. on. Um, and you haven't even asked who's going to win. <laughs> well, that, that was going to be my next question, naturally. Um, I, I would be curious on your thoughts. What, uh, what do you think? Who you got? I've got Barcelona. I think I think you want to look at the underdog and you love the idea that it's written in the stars for Juve. But you look at the run they've had. They've beaten Dortmund on a poor season. They've beaten Monaco in a in a pretty comfortable draw for them. And they, they beat Real Madrid at a time where uh, Madrid were in a very bad moment. But they still do very well to beat them. Barcelona have beaten Manchester City. They've beaten, uh, who did they beat after that? Uh, PSG, I believe. Yeah, PSG. PSG, that's right. They beat PSG. Thank you, Brian. And then they beat Bayern Munich. I mean, that's champions in England, France and Germany. So their run to the to the final has been tougher. They're playing better. I'm not going to say their front three are unstoppable, but they are likely to score goals. I just can't see anyone beating them at the moment. I'll say it. The front three are unstoppable. They're unstoppable. <laughs> this is they are unstoppable. This is what kind of strikes me is that I remember in sort of, you know, the 09 to 2011 kind of run that Barcelona had, uh, there was a lot of talk about is, is this the best club team we've ever seen? Is this the best soccer team we've ever seen? Right. And it's just crazy to imagine that here we are uh, three or four years later. You know, you, you know, you have Xavi diminished. You have Guardiola gone. You have guys like Puyol who've moved on. Um, you bring in. Uh, Neymar and Suarez, and you figure out a way to make to, to to get enough goals and balls for everybody, right? I mean, when you bring in players of that hunger and that caliber, and uh, you know, to try to keep everyone happy and everyone unselfish and everyone working together, that's a tall order. And and not only has this Barcelona team done it, they've done it to spectacular effect. They're killing people, and it's just really, really impressive that that you know, four years after, is this the greatest team of all time? we could be having that discussion again. And that's really, really impressive. And it's hard to see Juventus stopping that. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with that at all. 120 goals, I believe it is, between Messi, Neymar, and Suarez this year. 120 goals. That is just an outrageous number. Uh, if you're looking for a prediction for me, because obviously you are. 
I think I think Barcelona wins 3-1. I think Messi and Neymar Suarez each get a goal and an assist. And for Pirlo's sake, send him out on a free kick. Seem, seem, seem about okay, Ben? Yeah, that would be nice. That would be nice. <laughs> Brian, do you have a, a, a final prediction before we wrap it up? I hate making predictions. I know, I know, I, but but we I, love to hear you try. I I think, like I said, I think Barcelona. I just called them unstoppable. So so <laughs> I, yeah, I think Barcelona is going to win. Um, you know, I I think Juve is a very good team. I, I think that you know they're, they're well organized. They've got some real pieces that can threaten. But Barcelona is playing at a level. Uh, I would say that we've never seen, but we have. We 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 saw it four years ago. Um, yeah, but in, in a different way, right, Brian? I mean, this team is different to to Pep's team. That team is all about control, possession. Yes. I mean, when, when they right. started becoming the so dominant. Totally different. The way they come at you is totally different. Um, you know, uh, Xavi out and, and a different couple pieces in the, in the midfield, Rakitic. I mean, it, right, it's a different team, um, but, but so explosive, so difficult. And again, what, what gets me as a former selfish striker is how unselfish they are. How you, see, how you see Neymar, Suarez, and Messi and the rest of them passing up chances so their teammates could have better chances and better looks. And that just says that something real cosmic is going on here to me. So, so yes, Barcelona wins the Champions League and, and Pirlo comes to MLS and we rejoice. <laughs> Maybe. Can you imagine the possibilities, Pirlo, here? Uh, I know there's all the talk of NYCFC, that report in, in Spain. Uh, whether that is, is true or not remains to be seen. But, uh, man, that guy is, is just a legend. Um, I just want to see Pirlo, like, playing in Columbus. You know, <laughs> I, you know that was, I don't know. Just just the thought of that. Pirlo on the town in 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 Commerce City. I don't know. That's that has to happen. That's that's a thirty for thirty right there. That uh, that would be fascinating. One one parting thought. Um, this or two parting thoughts, I guess. Paul Pogba obviously he's going to be massive name in the transfer market. Uh, whether he stays at Juventus or or goes, he's probably the most sought after guy on the field or in in the field right now. So if he uh, if this is his last game with Juventus. That remains to be seen. And then finally, back to Pirlo and Gianluigi Buffon playing in Berlin at the stadium where they won the 2006 World Cup. Uh, if Juventus can overcome Barcelona and win this, how about that? Nine years apart in the same stadium you won the World Cup, now winning the Champions League. I think that would be absolutely fascinating. Um, it's it's just rare. How, how, when are you ever even in position to do something like, like that, let alone pull it off? Uh, so something else to keep an eye out on, uh, on the event, this side of things. Um, and on that note, I'm going to cap this remarkable week, uh, with this hopefully remarkable podcast. I want to thank, uh, Grant Wall for joining us from Los Angeles, Ben Littleton from the UK and Brian Strauss from the Washington DC area. I am Avi Creditor. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. We'll talk to you next week. about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. 
Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.